Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Hi, welcome back to Parenting in the Trenches. In our adoption series, we are today focusing in on attachment healing in the face of attachment trauma. Dr. Lark Eshelman is an author, a therapist, an educator whose expertise is working with kids and teens who have experienced early emotional trauma, attachment difficulties, neglect, and abuse. She is board certified in domestic violence by the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress, and she is the creator of STAT, Synergistic Trauma and Attachment Therapy. Dr. Lark's experiences as a volunteer field worker with Croatian orphans following the Balkan Wars for Independence, as a school principal, a psychologist, librarian, parent, and during her own childhood have all shaped her pioneering work with families, with teachers, therapists, and institutions. She helps them with the necessary understanding and the tools to support young people in their recovery from traumatic experiences. Lark, I am so incredibly pleased that we have had a chance to meet. What an opportunity to have this conversation together and that you are willing to spend some time with us talking about adoption, the ways in which separation and the disruption of our attachment from birth parents disrupts our development and how adoptive parents can be really effective agents for, of healing for their children. Thanks for being here today. This is my joy, Karen, not even my um, my pleasure, but really my joy. Mm-hmm. I think from our short conversations before, you know how um, how enthusiastic I am about talking about this, about yeah. sharing information with people, about learning from people. And already I've learned from you. Thank you for the podcasting mm-hmm. you're doing. It's awesome. So good. Okay. I, we've got a lot to cover today on we the do. topic of attachment disruption and attachment healing, trauma healing. And you, the breadth and depth of your work is so incredible that I know we cannot cover everything you have done and learned in this time together. So I thought maybe we would just kick off with a question about why, what inspired you to write the book? You wrote a book called Becoming a Family, Promoting Healthy Attachments with Your Adopted Child. And I'm very intrigued. That's a big project to take on. What inspired you to do that? It was a big project, but I couldn't hold it in any longer. It was Aww. it was one of those things that I was bursting to do. So um, again, the word joy comes to mind when I think of my career. I'm so fortunate. Um, so what was happening at the time was I was uh, I had started a clinic, mm-hmm. and we were sort of experimenting is maybe a non-clinical word and maybe a dangerous word, I don't know, but we knew that there were ways to work with families and kids that were not being used on a regular basis and that we should be using them. Mm -hmm. New forms of interventions, new ways of approaching healing. Parents were coming in to a great extent through foster care and adoption. And they were saying to us, it's not working or it's not working as well as we hoped or we're afraid we're devastated. We, we came to this place in our lives with hope and love, and it's just not looking the way we thought it would. Yes. We don't know what to do. Yeah. 
So my, I would go home at night filled with um, sadness about people whose lives were not working the way they, they were expecting them to, especially when their goals and dreams were so beautiful. What they wanted was healthy children, a healthy family. So my goal in this book was to inspire hope. Really the word that, that I kept reminding myself, I didn't need to remind myself, it just kept coming up in my brain, mm. was these are people filled with hope and now that hope has been, um, yeah. I don't want to say damaged so much as it's in jeopardy. Yeah. And we need to reinvest hope. Mm. So that's kind of where it came from. Um, an example, here's an example of what what was happening at the time that made me think, mm, okay, I'm learning from parents. I'm learning from kids. I need to share this because yeah. people need to hear from each other about what they are doing that's working and what they're doing that didn't work. And, you know, all the good stuff we can learn from each other. So a family came in, lovely couple, a little older. They waited a while before they started their family. They went to a foreign country. I won't give any identifying information, but um, they brought home two children from another country. And on the way home, they didn't go directly to their home. They stopped at Disney World on the way because they said, these are kids who come from significant deprivation. It's just not fair that they never had a chance to... Um, to experience the kind of things that our kids do. And we want to give them fun. We want their lives to be fun. Well, Karen, you and probably yeah. most of your listeners I'm cringing will, know, already. Yeah. will know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time they came to us, it was sort of they're holding their heads, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, we don't, we we just don't understand this behavior. The kids yeah. I think were five and six. Okay. And they had had a couple. Um, experiences in therapy that were not real helpful. Mm -hmm. So they came as kind of a last resort. Well, when we talked about why the trip to Disney World kind of set them off in a not so great trajectory, they said, okay, yeah, now know. we get it. Well, the realization, right? Yeah. 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 <sighs> and that's what I was going for in the book was okay. nobody is at fault here. This is a no, no. fault zone. So didn't great know. intentions, right? They're just mm. such, yeah, 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 mm. exactly. So it's sort of like, all right, if I can help someone else by sharing experiences, of course, with everyone's permission, but it's yeah. like, wow, we, we can help. We can help lots of families that love these children that are coming into it with very positive expectations as well as um, mission Yeah, and um, just help the process. Incredible. So hope. Reinstating hope, reinvesting hope, and giving tools. That I'm so glad emphasis. you wrote it. I'm so glad you wrote it. I I would echo that has been my experience working with adoptive and foster families. Is yeah, that is so common. It is so common, and yeah. I think it's more common than not that that adoptive they're they are so hope filled. They have deep hopes and plans for loving oh, yes. family environments to envelop kids who have been starved of the connection that they deserve. Right. And there's this longing to both receive and provide it. And when that feels difficult, surprisingly difficult, it just can crush people. 
Like, I don't know now where to, I'm lost. I don't know where to go now from here because I had a plan in my head about how I was going to just love on this kid and, and it's not working. And in fact, the more I love on them, the more I'm pushed away. And what do I do with that? Right. And if it's more common than not for those parents to underestimate the attachment injury, and I would say, I don't know if this is how you have experienced this, but I see this so much more in infant adoption that people believe that just, and I think that to, that's fair because the research is pretty new for us to understand the science about what's happening for our kids neurodevelopmentally no. when there's an attachment disruption in utero, in birth, and like that trauma really yeah. early seems foreign to us as adults where we think they don't, we don't remember. So if they can't remember, they're not really traumatized. Can you speak to that? What do we know now about what happens for kids? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's fascinating that this whole field has been fascinating to me yeah. since, um, uh, since forever, really, uh, yeah. partly because of my own upbringing, partly because of what happened in my own family. But, um, and I love them dearly and they're wonderful people, but you know, we all live what we learn. Yes. And so what we learned in my family was different from what I would consider to be the most optimal healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I was fascinated by this. I wanted desperately to understand and to learn, and it pushed me throughout my career. Um, And as I watched the brain research coming out, and put it side by side with attachment theory and attachment therapy. And then my greatest teachers, parents and children themselves, yeah. all of this came together. And it was this, this aha moments one after another. And one of them is this. If you, uh, let me see if I can make this a, a really easy thing to understand, because I think for some people, it's not at all intuitive. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. But yeah. If you learn the English language, then you can read a book. If you don't know the English language and someone gives you a book written in English, you can't read it. If when you're very young, you learn how, what an attachment is. Yeah, what the is, template. A, exactly, the template. Okay. What is it that says, when I'm afraid, this is where I go. When I have needs, this is how I express them. When I need help, I know that I can trust it will be there. Even if it's not the best yeah. uh, attachment, even if it's, not, if it's not the most healthy, once you learn the template, you can take it with you. Yeah. Well, if you don't get that when you're very young, infant adoption says you don't have time for a parent. A healthy attachment takes time. Yeah. If you don't have time to develop and learn what is attachment, then you don't have it to bring with you. It's like being given a book when someone offers you a healthy attachment. It's like being given a book, but you never learned the language. So I think people are surprised and often parents will say to me, uh, we, we really don't think it's an attachment problem because we adopted them right from the hospital. Yep common or we adopted them very early or they came to us when they were still only a few months old. I understand why you would expect that that would be true, Mm -hmm. but in fact, very often it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Then there's the whole issue of um, the toxins that many, many babies experience in utero. And that's a whole nother neurodevelopmental issue. But 
In terms of learning attachment, usually it is best learned. Most often it is learned early, early, early. And if you don't learn it, you don't have the template for it. You're not bringing it into another relationship. That's well said. We talk, does that make sense, Karen? Because yeah, it's does. much harder to learn later. It is. Yeah. I always think about it as kind of like a map. If I like, I know I have a sense of where I want to go, what I want to experience, but without some kind of map to teach me how to get there, it just yeah. feels like I'm stuck in the middle of a forest. I don't know which way is south, which way is west, and I'm I'm confused, but still left with the longing. So I want something, yeah. but I can't achieve it. Yeah. And it's so difficult when we aren't taught maps and, and our yeah. secure attachments teach us the maps. That is the map, right? Yes. And what you're describing too is what I call the push-pull of attachment disorder in that I think every baby, every child knows there's something that they're not getting. Something yeah. is wrong. Something is missing. Something yeah. isn't going quite right. And so they're asking for help. So they yeah. cry, they scream, they misbehave. They do something that is an attempt to secure Draw that, it whatever yeah. it is that they're missing. Right. The attention, the affection, the stability, um, yeah. whatever they, they are sensing that they need, but they can't articulate. But then because attachment has been something that was scary in the past because it was broken. They were left yeah. without it. It's misery. It's misery to lose yeah. an attachment and they lost it. So who the heck wants to go through that again? So they put their hand yeah. up, you know, their little hand, one, one little hand is going, please yeah, give me in. something. I know I'm missing it. And the other little hand is saying, but don't come too close because I don't want to have another, another broken heart. Yeah. I don't want it to be broken again. So it's a push pull that happens over and over again. And I feel so sympathetic with parents who are trying yeah. their very best to be consistent, to give what they think the child is asking for, but then to be pushed away. Yes. It yeah. hurts. It know? hurts. Everybody it hurts. is hurting. We are right? all wired for connection. And I think sometimes parents will get that around developing children like that's like mm -hmm. the first aha level of oh our babies are born wired for connection that's why I can understand and attune to them and but that requires our own connection with self too we are wired yes. for connection so when parents come and say I'm struggling so much I feel rejected by my child. I know I'm the adult and I'm supposed to be ever present and always okay with everything. But man, when I get slapped in the face or if I get sworn at or if I get bit or if I, you know, I'm pouring into them all day long and they're miserable at the end of the, yeah. like nothing I do seems right. Yeah. That level of exhaustion is very real because we too are human and that's not a healthy exchange in relationship. And so we suffer too from that experience. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. And you know, I've heard so many parents say, and I believe it's true that um, kids with attachment issues have a very strong innate sense of where the soft spots are. Soft spots are. Yes. Finely attuned they... skills, the hot yeah. buttons. Yeah. It's a, it's a street smart that... Yeah kids develop. We're talking about kids who have uh, fear of, well, their lives are fear-driven. In right. fact, um, Seaburn Fisher wrote a book called The, the, the Fear-Driven Brain. 
I think that's the name of the book. Anyway, that's the name of the talk that she gives about it. And I believe that's most of our kids. Their brains are driven by fear. So, uh, you know, if they're afraid, they're going to find whatever they can that's going to keep them safe. And that means they have to know other people's soft spots. Yeah. So that they can zing, protect themselves, push them away. And they're protecting themselves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Karen, it brings up a point that I I didn't know if we would have time to talk about, but I really think it's important to mention it. Please do. We're told as parents, um, especially those of you who are adoptive or foster parents or parents of children who have a lot of early trauma, that we have to be good attachment parents. And that means that we need to be the only parent, the only adult in that child's life. And to a great extent, I believe that's true. However, just as we're talking about infants who don't have the template and are too afraid to allow themselves to be vulnerable, to try it with their parent, there are numbers of kids who can try attachment and learn the template with another adult or sometimes with an, an animal, a dog, for example, a pet. But I'm thinking now of um, a grandparent, maybe, or a neighbor, yeah. somebody who's not threatening because the child does not have to have what anyone would consider to be. A- it's not associated with parenthood. Yeah. Okay. Right. And that they can very often practice with this child what it feels like to receive um, affection from or even just living in a a healthy, um, it's not the right word, a a fear-free zone. Yeah. They don't have to be They can be regulated in that context. Okay. Yeah. So I encourage parents to think about that for their own child. There may be a person. Now, obviously, you have to be really, really, really careful because these are yeah. kids who very Selective. often will go to someone who is not appropriate That's right. as an attachment figure or just somebody to be around. But if you know someone well that your child feels they can be their own selves with and try out mm-hmm. what might be a trusting relationship, don't be afraid once you've vetted that person carefully, and of course you're going to keep an eye on the relationship, but yeah. don't be afraid to let the child try out what is mm. it like to play, for example, with another person, with another adult, and not feel you have to keep that little hand up there saying, no, no, don't yeah. get too close, yeah. but actually try out what it feels like. Because what they're doing is trying to, just like with that analogy of the book, they're trying to learn English so they can read the book. They're trying yeah. to learn what an attachment feels like. So then when they are ready, they can try it with a parent. It's so, really comforting and hopeful to hear that. Oh, I good. think you're right. I think that has been a strong messaging, um, particularly in the early years of attachment forming. So if particularly like if an older child is coming into your family unit to be really protective of almost like nesting, like we're going to just close ourselves in and just focus on our, and I, I get that in theory, but I do think that's a better, that's a better frame to think about it from that. Yes. As a primary but not as an only. And that part of our primary care work for our kids is to create 
different spaces and places for safe connection. That's also our, our job. It's not just us doing the work. It's us facilitating the work. So can we find safe places? The vetting is a great example, right? That we screen for that. We don't just say, oh, good, they have a new friend. We're just going to carry on with that. We're going to select and almost Very front carefully. load opportunities for where we can trust that it, if it forms, it'll be a healthy formation. And that that's a safe place to experiment and play with and try on trust. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was going through the book, my, my own book, even though it's almost 20 years old, it's a lot of it is still the same. Things have yeah. not changed in terms of a lot of the attachment. But even then, 18 or 19 years ago, I was saying in the book, when your child first comes to you, you must be the primary caregiver. You must be the person with whom the child is connected. Mm -hmm. And I do believe on some level that that's correct. You do yeah. still want to be the person that that yeah. child knows he or she can come to when they have an issue and that you will fill their needs. But in terms of feeling safe in just a play relationship, practicing that, trying that out. I was, I was thinking of my own little granddaughter who of course at today, today is, um, is, uh, 16 months old. Aww. And for her to come to me, whom she doesn't see very often, she often looks at her mom or dad, like, you know, I'm not sure I remember, is this person safe or not? Yeah. She's got a really healthy attachment going yeah. with her parents. They're beautiful parents. They're doing an absolutely wonderful job. Mm. I couldn't be more proud of them and more happy for my granddaughter. Mm. But we pass attachment along to some extent. Mm -hmm. We share it with other people by saying, you trust me, I trust them. They're yeah. an okay person. Reciprocal. Yeah. And, and it can also, I think what I'm saying is it can also go the other way. So there may be a grandparent mm -hmm. or um, a neighbor or someone to whom we very, we're very close with whom this child just kind of has a natural affinity and it works. Yeah. Once that template is secure, once they say, oh, now I get it. The kids are saying, now I get it. I can actually let my guard down. I can actually yeah. just have fun. Yep. That other person can help share it with parent, with mom or dad. Yes. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways. I'm not taking away from the fact that mom and dad still have to be the primary yeah, or attachment key. Absolutely. person. Yeah. Right. Are there other things, approaches or like steps? We always really try to be as concrete, even in complex topics to help parents walk away feeling like I have a picture in my head now about something I can do today to shift the way I think about it, the way I talk to my child, the way I, from yeah. a, that trauma-informed lens, from an attachment-based place, what are the key pieces? What are the things that we kind of have to hang our hat on and come back to over and over again as parents? You know, I, I fell in love with Dan Siegel a long time ago yeah. when he and I were both on it. In Me 1999, too. we both were in Washington, D.C. as part of uh, something the federal government was calling Safe from the Start. Okay. And we were developing protocols for um, understanding how to help kids stay safe. In the, We were in the five and under area. And then there were other clinicians and okay. theorists and whoever on in different ages. But... I fell in love with him because of some of the things that he 
just talked about so naturally, like, you know, you have to fall in love with your kid. So I fell in love with right. him because he talked about falling in love with kids. And I thought, yeah. I don't know too many men who talk about that. Stay not to that. be sexist. That's right. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But he was the first one to introduce me to uh, the whole GABA thing. And it's become something in my head that has really stuck with me. So um, when we talk about self-regulation, big topic right now. We need our kids to be self-regulated. Yes, we do. We as parents need to be self-regulated. We as clinicians need to be. We all yeah. hopefully need to be self-regulated. Yeah. And we talk about it a lot recently. Yeah. Great. But how does that work? Mm-hmm. So GABA is one of those neurotransmitters from our highest order thinking that actually we secrete and we squirt on our lower on our basal brain, on our fear areas, when they become activated, that say to us, hey, chill out. That's that's not really something that's going to hurt you. You see a stick in front of you when you're walking through the woods and you think, could that be a snake? Oh my gosh, I'm scared. And of course, your body reacts like it's scared as it should. GABA then gets squirted as you realize, no, that's a stick, not a snake. And yeah. Your body can chill out. We can we can ease off the fight, flight, or freeze, however our mm-hmm. body responds. But that doesn't work as well for infants. They get scared and then they kind of get stuck in being scared. And if yeah. their bodies don't help them learn to chill, then they get what I call addicted to their own adrenaline. They get stuck uh-huh. in being yeah. hyperreactive. Yeah. So somewhere along the line, it occurred to me that we as parents are the GABA Mm -hmm. for kids until they can develop this themselves. And let me give you an example. And I bet there are some, some parents who are listening who are going to chuckle about this because lots of parents do it. I'm going to say more dads do it than moms. I'm going to say more moms go like (gasps) than dads, but that's kind of sexist and not always the case. Okay. So dad has baby. Baby's now old enough to have enough structure that he or she can hold up their head and, you know, they're pretty well organized and their I muscles are working. I feel it coming, working. Lark. I feel it coming. You know, you know what I'm going to say, You're throwing Karen. that baby in the air? <laughs> yes. And they throw that. Good for you. They throw that baby in the air. And when you look at the baby, and I've asked parents to do this before, oh. and I take pictures of the baby. Oh my up there and they are in the middle of terror yes and then dad catches them and what does he do karen what do they mm. always do what do we always do bring them right here yeah right Back we home. bring them right to our heart yeah and they listen to our heartbeat and we take a breath and they take a breath and we chuckle and they giggle yeah. and then we do it again yeah and what we're doing is teaching self-regulation mm-hmm. by practicing what I call other regulation. In other words, we're helping them learn what GABA does. Yes. <laughs> what their own bodies will learn to do if they're lucky. Would, as soon kids. as you said the word squirt, I was imagining sprinkler systems in a building yep. and it doesn't take much smoke to make those go off. And yep. so even if the fire is not that big, the sprinkler goes and it just settles our Yeah. It settles the fire before it gets big. Right. And if babies don't have a sprinkler system installed, we do it for them. 
we sprinkle, we let them borrow from us, yep. right? Until they go, okay, I'm, I've, I'm developing that inside myself to be able to offer that to myself when I'm grown up. But the, there's nothing exactly broken right. about a child if they don't have a sprinkler system. I think that's the other piece is they're meant to be dysregulated. Yeah. That's normal. We don't expect right. babies to self-regulate. And I think right. that's a lot of this, this parenting debate, how many books I don't know if that was the nineties. That's just let your kid cry themselves to sleep. And then it shifted really pendulum swing to never let your child cry themselves to sleep. That's like torture and you are making them suffer and they need you and you have to comfort and soothe. And parents went from like in one generation, they had to go, what am I abusing my child? If I let them right strong messaging because it happens so fast in reactivity to the other method of parenting. And I think that was one of those places at sleep time or bedtime that that theory came out where parents were terrified of like, have I damaged my older kids? Because I ascribed to that, that sleep schedule thing where I just let them scream it out until, right. That's yeah. Yeah, it's true. And you know, I, if you ask me the name of this book, I won't be able to tell you. So please don't ask. But the yeah. about a hundred years ago now, the number one book for book sold in the U.S. after the Bible was a book about how to raise your child, and it included this very pithy um, directive, which was don't touch your children. Oh, Maybe give word. them a kiss on their birthday. Oh. Seriously. Don't touch your children. Right. Wow. And that was the number one book uh, available to the public about 100 years ago. <sighs> well, talk about a pendulum swing, but it really depended, I think, on the culture, on where you came from. If yes. that was your yes. habit, if that was For your sure. cultural inclination, if that was what you learned. Remember, we live what we learn. Yes. If that's what we learned, then that seemed like a natural thing. Like, oh, yeah, yeah sure. Right. If it wasn't and you were fighting against it, like, I want to touch my kids. Half of my family is Italian. You know. Yeah. We were always touched and hugged yes. and kissed. Yes. And, yeah. you know, I, I'll never forget that mm -mm -mm uh -huh. where we used to grandpa, great grandpa would, mm -hmm. um, you know, just grab our cheeks and boy, it hurt. But yes, for him, that was love. That was Affection. showing love. Yeah. So yeah. the pendulum does swing in terms of what we think and how we think. But I think there are a couple of things that I believe will not change, or maybe I should say should not change. Um, and that is number one, I would say, is that to help your child feel safe in their environment, meaning that their needs are being met. Yeah. And for me, their needs are being met with a smile, not a scowl, not to say, fine, Resentful. you're hungry, here's your food. Right. right. But rather, I'm so happy to be able to feed you, Yeah. you know, now when it's yeah. time to eat. That feeling of, of safety to me is the number one issue in helping kids um, develop in a, in, a, in a healthy way. So, you know... When you ask about what are the, what's sort of the zeitgeist or what's the way yeah. that we can sort of frame this whole thing. If you keep thinking of safety, we do that with physical safety, 
I'm not sure we think about it as much in emotional safety. Agreed. But it's equally important. Yeah. I think. We have to give more weight to that. I also think think it's a harder thing to relate because it's, it's trickier to maybe dissect. So what our child shows us might look like defiance or anger or withdrawn. And, and we, it's, we, we need translation skills, I think for the emotional part, like for us to be able to say, we know what's going on inside the child that makes that be seen to us is harder Mm -hmm. than a child breaking their arm. It is what it is. We see it. It's a broken arm. We know what to do. We know what's needed and we attend. Right. And I I think it's just harder work to understand someone else's inner workings that might be veiled a little bit. And, but yeah, the importance I think is it, it needs, we need to elevate that and, and invest more in trying to understand and meet our kids needs that way. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I wrote before our time today, Karen, thinking about what we were going to talk about. I wrote quite a bit and it was, I I went through parts of my book again and I wrote down some Mm. things that I wanted to make sure came up. And actually the example that I used in terms of understanding emotional safety was if our child came to us with a broken, I used back, but it could be arm and we can't see it from the outside. Yeah. But it's no wonder when we know it, it's no wonder that they either push us away if we try to get close because it's going to hurt. Yeah. Or run away from us when yeah. we go to hug them Makes because sense. it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. Or um, that they just freeze in place and know that it's going to hurt and they just are going to deal with it. So yeah. it's a fight, flight, or freeze response yeah. to a physical injury that we may not be able to see, but their behavior should give us a clue that something is wrong. Yeah. Well, the same thing is true for emotional injuries, but they're not, it's not as obvious, is it? Mm -hmm. So watching, getting more attuned to see what the signs and signals are from our children when they are in self-preservation mode, how, when they're protecting self, what does that look like for my child? How do I know when they feel they need to be protective of themselves because that's the, the cue to me then to understand, okay, they're feeling unsafe. It is less about what I'm seeing or what's coming at me. It's that's just data to tell me what's happening inside of them. Behavior is a language. Isn't yes, it? it is. Yeah. Behavior is a language. And sometimes it's the only language that kids have to say. Yeah without words, what they're feeling. So when I'll suggest to a family, I see that you're struggling. You may want to play a game together. Here are a couple that I would recommend. And the family calls me after three days and says, eh, doesn't work. This kid won't engage. That's language. That's this child saying to you, I'm not ready for that. I'm not safe in that environment yet. Or you need to come at it a different way, or you need to be slower with it, or whatever it is that they're trying to say that they don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand it until uh, earlier I mentioned that my best teachers in this whole life have been parents and children with whom I have worked or whom I have come to know. Children tell me after maybe a year and a half or two years of therapy, attachment therapy is not fast. They'll say to me, when I would sit on the couch, on the sofa, when the family was saying, come on, you can play with us. Let's. Come on, don't be a party pooper. 
They had yeah. no clue how scary that whole thing was to me. Yeah. I didn't even realize, they will say, how scary it was to me. I just knew I couldn't do it. I yep. couldn't do it. Not that I didn't want to or yeah. didn't know how to. I yeah. couldn't. Couldn't. Yeah. It's not willful. No. Just like it's not willful on the part of a parent when they get so frustrated and they finally throw their hands up and say, I I, I, I just I'm can't lost. do this right now. Yeah, that's right. That's not willful. No. But it's it's behavior it, yeah. that will help us understand yeah. what it is that they're feeling on the inside. It's a language. Behavior is a language. Yeah. Yeah. What helps we we can get better at detecting. And then what do we do with it? So when we see the safety, the the self-protection happen frequently, and we kind of, we see the patterns, we see when this is happening, what do we actually do to, how do we adjust environments to make it more safe? What What do kids need from us? Is it just validation? Do they need tenderness, compassion, what are, what are the, the, um, I think about kind of like the fairy dust, like what's in, what are the ingredients in the fairy dust that kind of help the, the slow attachment movement towards security and safety? I love that so much, Karen. My favorite books when I were, was growing up were Tarzan, because I think I, I, I needed to be king of the jungle or queen of the jungle or whatever. But the other was Peter Pan. And okay. Tinkerbell there and Fairy Dust was just so close to my heart. Well, we need to... Um, I'm, I'm going to suggest two things. And then there's, of course, there's a lot more in the book. And I, you're right. what you said at the beginning, we can't go into everything, but I'm going to suggest two things. One is that as much as we can, we need to understand the language and then do what the language is telling us to do. So for example, if we have children who are pretty constantly pulling away, not, not wanting to be touched, let me give you a concrete example. For a while, it was very, um, Uh, suggested in therapy, in attachment therapy, that we encourage kids to sit in their mom's lap, regardless of their age, put their heads back in their mom's arm or dad, uh, attachment figure. And the parent could then rock them or um, look into their eyes, maybe feed them a little, you know, an animal cracker, whatever. But going back to, um, to the very earliest stages of attachment and helping that child feel safe in that environment. For some kids, that was brilliant. It was, it worked really well. It was a lovely thing. And some kids would, you could see them melt into their parent's arm. Mm-hmm. Now this may be a 14 year old who yesterday mm-hmm. was telling their parent, sorry, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but F mm-hmm. you yeah. get out of my face. Yeah. Don't even look at me. Yeah. Um, I can't stand to be in the same room with you. And now we see them melting into their mom's arms. So for some kids, that was great. For many kids, it didn't work. And we assumed wrongly in most cases that this was because the kids were not ready for that level of attachment or weren't able to participate in that way in an attachment activity. What we learned then was that somewhere between 75 and 90% of kids who have 
really rough beginnings and have not had the help along the way to deal with them. So that's the definition of trauma, right? Is not yes. that you have tough stuff happening to right. you, that you're alone. but you have tough stuff happening to you and you don't have the support to meet the need. Yeah. So the demand is greater than the need. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. The demand is greater than the ability to meet that moment. Right. That's what I mean to say. Yeah, so the overwhelm. Um, yeah. You lose someone, you're hurt, you're afraid, whatever, and you don't have that person who's going to help you. Yes. So that is when trauma starts. Okay. So of all the kids that we saw, somewhere between 75 and 90% of them is what the research is telling us now, have what we call sensory processing disorder. Yeah. Well, for many of those kids to lot simply the physical act of lying yeah. backwards posture, yeah, it, mm-hmm, is terrifying. Yeah. So we're encouraging them to do something that is anathema to them, that is frightening to them, that is physically uh, makes them want to throw up or yeah, not a good thing anyway. Yeah. And we're asking them to do it in the framework of attachment therapy. It was antithetical, and luckily we yeah. figured it out pretty quickly. So we have to be really careful about what our kids' language of behavior is telling us. Is it telling us that there is, as you suggested earlier, a broken arm? Yeah. And we're talking now about emotional breaks, Mm -hmm. emotional pain. And if so, um, fine. But if not, is there something like a sensory processing disorder going on? And who do you go to? An occupational therapist. Make sure that it's somebody who knows what they're doing, who has specific training in, um, in early trauma with kids, pediatric OT. Yeah. So, um, so reading our kids is really important to understand how do we address this whole thing? Um, the underlying issue here and the underlying uh, point that I want to come back to is that there has to be a sense of safety and that's the other part. And one way to help our kids be safe Uh, is also to prepare them for what's happening in their lives. So Mm. these are kids who don't generally do well with surprises. Yes. Prepare them when you're going somewhere. Tell them what's going to happen to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. Be with them until they feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Maybe hook them up with someone else with whom they feel safe so that even if you can back up a little bit, they have another person who's with them who is a safe person. Maybe it's another kid who's at a party with them or something like that. So reading your kid's language to say, what is it that's going on under the hood, so yes, to speak. That's right. And secondly, preparing them as much as you can. Those two things are going to, um, they're going to go a long way to help kids trust you that as a parent, you can help them keep their life safe. Yeah. Which is, of course, our main job as a parent is to keep our kids' lives safe um, until they're old yeah. enough to do that for themselves. Well, and I, I, what I'd like to add, if I can here, and wondering what your thoughts are about this piece, because the amount of effort, stamina, patience, mm. compassion, yep. executive functioning, constant thinking, pre-planning, being attuned and prepared, comforting, repairing, all of that stuff in relationship 
for a healthy developing child is already taxing for a new parent. When a child has had any kind of significant developmental trauma or neurowiring to cope with fearful circumstances or has any kind of special needs, the, the number, I just think of, it just shoots up. What's required of parents is so much. And so I think about part of the recipe has to be self-care. And I don't mean the spa. I, I mean regulation for us as parents who are in the mud of it all the time. We need showers more regularly because if you just dabble in a puddle, you could just change your shoes and carry on. But if you are immersed in mud every day, you need a full cleanse and that needs to match, right? You can't just do the little things that average parents do to be able to compensate for the level of need that your child needs from you. It's high. And I think people don't give themselves permission to recognize that. And honestly, Karen, thank you for saying that, especially now during the pandemic. Yes. Especially now. Yeah. More of us are in the deep mud. It's just a crusher out there for everybody. And imagining that parents who have kids who are maybe neuroatypical or, I mean, sensory processing disorder. There are so many things that can go on with our kids that the level of exhaustion and frustration, yeah. It's high. It has to be so, so high. Yeah. So, yeah, we're working on a, um, a program right now that is basically for caregivers, but they could also be teachers mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of self, mm, self-care. In a, it sounds like kind of a trite phrase, doesn't I it? Do. I do. I hate the word. Right. We need a better word. Yeah. Because it's not what I mean when I say it. I. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I yeah. know. So we'll, yeah. we can work on that, but yeah, the idea is the same, that we have to take care of ourselves and each other. That's right. You know, I, I did want to mention today that parents should um, trust their guts. No one knows their kids better than they do, Thank but you. they also yes. should not be afraid of couples therapy or parenting therapy. Get some help. Because it really can maybe be that place where you can just let it yep. rip and yep. just say what you're feeling and be in a, um, you know, a safe zone. Sorry, I've been suggesting to a lot of people to journal for the first time because we're so isolated right now. We don't have, and therapy wait lists are huge. So we're now in that, like when push comes to shove, we're getting real resourceful about finding different outlets at, you know, I know it's not going to cut it for a lot of people, but it's something, um, movement and, the ability to express yourself somehow, do some art, find someone to talk to. Uh, yeah, there's got to be a place for that yeah. to go. Yeah. And a parent said to me a long time ago, you know, I started getting up 15 minutes earlier, just 15 minutes yeah. Yeah. and using that time. And I was interested. I thought she was going to say to journal. 
But what she said was to go lie down on the bed with my child because it's the only time I could feel relaxed when I was with him. And that was a very healing experience for her every morning to start the day with that ability to take a deep breath. Oh my goodness. Powerful. Yeah. In physical proximity to her son who during the day was, you know, on his best behavior in terms of giving her punches whenever he could see an opening. So um, it's interesting how we can find those ways to give ourselves little gifts during the day. And journaling is certainly one of them. Yeah. Um, But we're working on this training for this. And I, I, there's going to be a lot more on our website, on my website, which is larkeshelman.com. Soon, because we're revising a lot of what we're writing, what we're doing, I'm actually, as I'm getting closer to retirement, I'm really pinpointing now, what is it that I want? What is the Mm -hmm. legacy that I want to leave? So even things like we were talking today about um, what can you do with your family, very practically speaking. And I went back to the book and said, oh yeah, I had a chapter about that. I kind of forgot that. So I put some of these examples down, like find a nickname. Huh. Only you can use with this child, but it's oh, something positive special. about this child. So, nice. um, I don't know, uh, sweet eyes or whatever it is, but you be the only one to use that nickname. And it's very special between the two of you, but it could mean something to this child, even if they don't get it right away yeah. or the fact of routines, which are so important for kids. So yeah. necessary. But what happens when you have a shorter period of time? Yeah you don't, you have to go to a meeting early or you have a doctor's appointment. And so you don't have as much time in the morning to go through the five steps of your routine that you usually do. Don't, don't take one of those steps out. Just mm-hmm. shorten each one of them a little bit. Okay. Because it's they important all matter. They're routine. all essential ingredients. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, you know, things like that, I, I, I am putting them now on, um, little, Maybe I should talk to you about this, Karen. You're a wizard at figuring out how to get things oh, out goodness. to parents. And I would very much like to have this available for parents. So yeah. we're putting more practical kinds of things like that on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to mention that when you talk about how do you affect some of these things, yeah. Jane Gordon is a friend who is an art therapist, and she and I developed a coloring book. We know from Bruce Perry's work and others' work that coloring can be very calming. Yeah, I love Must be this. There's some GABA uh, uh-huh. in there that Sprinklers helps are going kids off. to calm down when they color. Yeah. Well, we developed an extra wide coloring book that two people do together, and each one has their own part. And I won't go into detail, but it's called Color mm-hmm. Me Closer. Yeah. And there are there are few enough specific games, activities, things that you can get your hands on to do with kids that this was the first of what we were developing. And I'm so excited about it because we're getting very positive results from people. Oh yeah. Yeah. This child who didn't want to sit next to me now (laughs) is crossing over my arm to color on my side of the page. And um, we're laughing about it. Those kinds of experiences give me more joy than I can tell you. Seriously. So I encourage people to look um, on the website and see what's there. And then of course I also um, thrill at other parents, therapists, other people who have a lot to offer, who share that. And, you know, it takes time, but the more we can take a deep breath and spend a couple minutes thinking of one thing, finding one activity, seeing one encouraging remark, 
that feeds us. Yes. Because our kids often do not. Yes. Right? Yeah. I recently had a great kind of a problem solving conversation with a parent who was hungry. She's like, by the end of this session, I want to walk away with a concrete thing I can do to connect and feel good at the same time as my child. So when you were sharing that story about getting up 15 minutes earlier, because that was the only time that we found that worked for us to be on the same page. And we were both being fed from that experience. So we had this dialogue and we hummed and hawed and thought through all sorts, batted around all sorts of ideas. And then we realized what's relatively new in the last 15, 20 years are cooperative games. Yeah. So board games that don't pit you against each other, right. but allow you to both celebrate a win because together you teamed up and you got the same outcome. And for kids who are easily dysregulated and also feel like they rarely have control in life, co- competition and winning matters a whole lot. And it just sets people up. You think, well, I'm just playing a game with them that should be fun. Nine out of 10 times it ends in a fight or them storming off or a miserable evening. And she's like, oh, games never work for us. And then we got to this place where we thought, well, what would it look like if it was a cooperative game? They have played that that child obsessively asks to play that game now like every day can we can we play that again can we do it while we eat dinner can we play it before bed can we do it and both of them have experienced laughter peppered through the day because these games only take 15 20 minutes so it's great we'll just play one round but we'll do it three times a day I you know she's like I don't even care that we're doing the same thing over and over because it we do it well and I get to claim that 15 minute window as we got along, we got to high five each other. We were like bonding over snacks at the same time. And it was just an avenue that worked for both at the same time. So cool to see. So cool yeah. to see. There is a very beautiful piece of research that suggests that early childhood games are the very best, even not non-cooperative I mean, non-competitive rather, um, board games or anything like that, but things like peekaboo, even with a 14 year old, I was shocked that they (laughs) wanted to participate in these games. But you know, when we didn't, when we had trouble with a child in the, um, in the waiting room who didn't want to come into a therapy session and God knows, I understand why they didn't want to come in. Right. We were going to be picking at stuff that doesn't feel good. We would maybe, I would go out and say, and not even tell them what I was doing, but take their hands and start to play Ring Around the Rosie and just gently pull them up and around and around in the direction of the therapy room. And then when we all fall down, it's we all sit down and we help them sit down in the chair in the therapy room. You know how surprising it was, shocking really to me, that even teenagers were willing to participate and they... Oh, they might give me a dirty look when we start yeah, sure. out, but by but you the can end, see they have a chuckling. smile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that, well, they thought I was nuts, yeah. and you yeah. know I am. That's uh, part so of the charm. Did it That's bother. right. Yeah, yeah. But it was a way to say to them, among other things, I know you missed this when you were a kid. You yeah. couldn't really enjoy it yeah. then, but let's just be silly about it now. Yeah. And I'm not a threatening person. They don't yeah. have to attach to me. Yeah. But when they became more comfortable with it, then we'd grab mom and the three of us yeah. would go in or we might do a balloon, hit the balloon back and forth to each other down the hall. 
You know, you keep moving, you're going in the direction you want. Yeah. So I have suggested that to parents too, that, you know, the, the old, um, my kids will never come to dinner. Uh I call them and yell at them and they're not, Yeah, I know they're ready for dinner, but they won't come. You hang around the rosy with them. They'll think you're nuts. Who cares? Uh They'll remember somewhere in their body. They'll remember that remembering that regulating it is regulating and it's early childhood games all come from neurology. Yes. Peekaboo is object permanence. Yeah. Serve and um, return. Bring around the rosy is rhythm, which is so important. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you see yeah. them around the world in one form or another. Yeah. So going back to early childhood, neurologically regulating mm-hmm. uh, experiences with them is really good for everybody yeah. and usually yeah. end up laughing, even if it's at each other, who cares? That's right. It's just a good thing. Totally. You've named a lot of supports and a lot of resources. I'm going to make the show notes for this episode really long and thick. (laughs) I'm Uh going to plug in as much as I can. Um, Before we end today, do you have anything that you're dying to just put out on the table? Anything you want to say um, either on any topic we've talked about or a resource that you really want people to know about? The thing that I would like to say to parents the most is, you know, one of the hardest things in parenting is putting our own egos aside. Yeah. It's definitely whether yeah, these that's kids, work. Uh, it is work. And it's very scary because we build our own self-image um, about how we view ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes we have to move that over and say, yeah. for this job, I can't use that. Yeah. For example, I am... I am hyper organized on the outside because I'm very disorganized on the inside. And I take pride in the fact that I organize around myself because yeah. I'm afraid I'll forget or mess up inside. Well, there were times when my kids were young that I had to say, forget it. Mm-hmm. If I, I can't, it's just not as important to be organized right now as it is to get down on the floor and play in the sandbox with the kids or I used a rice box, you know, because rice was easier to sweep up. But when they were really having a ball in there with a rice and they said, mom, 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 come on, mommy, come on, play. Yeah. Sometimes I had to say, all right, this place is going to look like a mess right now. I don't care. Yeah. It's more important and it's very hard thing Mm. to do. So we have to sometimes put our own ego aside and just do what we, in our hearts or our gut, know our children need at that moment. It's permission, permission to pivot, permission to be present. Um, And I think the permission is, is required because there are so many external demands on us. There's cultural norms set for us. There are societal pieces. There are messages that we've received from our parents, but what makes you a good parent? And if we're not adding up, right. And so if I can't get my kid to do this the way I want, then that's going to show up when they go to school and they don't do those things. And that's embarrassing for me. And we have to be conscious parents, right. To really decide for ourselves with what we know now about parenting, with what we have learned for ourselves to trust ourselves and give ourselves permission to make new rules for this, that we don't have to have a spotless home. 
We have to have a lived in home where life happens, particularly when we're in our homes way more than we ever thought we would be. This becomes all the space for all the people. And we need permission to both find solace and organization, but also chaos and paint on the walls. Like, I know that's extreme, but like there's, <laughs> we, we can't think the way we used to because it's different times. It's a different generation. It's, we know different things. I just would love parents to just pause their assumptions and ask themselves, why do I feel like this is that important? Yeah. Does it have to be this way? And yeah. what is my gut telling me? So I really yeah. love that you ended us on that note, permission and trust your gut. Parents have such strong, wise, inter just intuition. Yeah. Yeah, very much. My heart goes out to everyone who's listening. And I hope that we can at some point connect. But you know what? At this moment, I hope that we're connecting through our hearts. Yeah. Karen, it, it, yeah. I feel so blessed that you have given me this opportunity to talk with you. You're so brilliant in what you do. And to, to just back and forth with you about this. What a gift. Thank you. Oh, I am feeling that same joy you entered this conversation with. I walked in with it too. It was so good to be with you today. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll continue. I'd love to keep working with you on some stuff and get the right tools to the right people. It'd be so awesome. we'll be in touch for sure. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.